When a user of a social network updates her profile, that profile update needs to propagate to several databases that want to know about such an update. Search indexes, user databases, caches, there's all kinds of services that might want to respond to this type of profile update in a social network with all kinds of services that are interacting with each other. When Neha Narkeda was at LinkedIn, she helped develop Kafka, which was deployed at LinkedIn to help solve this type of problem. Using Kafka as an event queue, LinkedIn adopted the CQRS architectural pattern together with event sourcing. Event sourcing is an architectural pattern that allows changes to our application model to be represented as events. Each event is published to this event queue, and it's pulled off of that queue by each of the various services that need to consume that event. This is known as the publish-subscribe pattern. Event sourcing and the related architectural pattern, CQRS, allow for a flow of information through an application that is easy to reason about. It has several other desirable properties as well, which I discuss with Neha in today's episode. She explains how to use Kafka for event sourcing and how related software patterns are improving the architectures of companies like Netflix and Uber. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Neha Narkede is the CTO of Confluent. Neha, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you, Jeff. I'm excited to be here. So last time we talked about Kafka in broad strokes. Today we're going to be talking a little bit more about event sourcing with Kafka. You wrote an article about event sourcing, and for those who are unfamiliar with the term, it's probably best explained by example. It's a fairly common architectural pattern today, but people may not have heard of it. So in your article, you talk about the example of a social network, Facebook, for example, and you give the example of a user updating her profile and the fact that that change to a profile needs to be propagated to several different services that consume the information. So if I think about this problem naively, it sounds like, okay, I just update the profiles database, the user profiles database, and the rest of the system should just take care of everything. It should all just pull from this profiles database. What is the problem with that uh, that train of thought? Like, why is this problem more complex than simply updating the user profiles database? You know, uh, that's a great question. There are several problems that pop up, uh, you know, in a practical sense. One is that the profile database is just how you start writing your profile app. And then over time, you want to add, you know, the search app that needs to know about the same data, the newsfeed app, the cache app and monitoring app and so on. The problem is that for fast changing data sets, a database is not a great way to model events. So essentially this is more about, you know, how does this change for data sets that are streaming in nature? The second one is a little more operational. The fact that if you change this database directly, there is no data history there is no way to replay. So for example, if you roll out a version of this profile web app that you're not happy with, it has essentially corrupted your database for good. And there's no way to really roll back and just being able to do upgrades easily in a rolling fashion is very hard for stateful applications. And the state here is this database. 
And the problem is, you know, the last problem is that you really cannot scale reads and writes independently. So if you think about a Facebook style app, uh, about 95% of Facebook um, profiles are read only, you know, the, the, there's a, the read traffic is way higher than the write traffic. And by modeling the write and read through the same data model, which is the database, you actually cannot scale those two independently. Right. And so in our last discussion, um, I don't know if you remember, but y you talked a bit about how when you were developing Kafka at LinkedIn, you had this exact type of problem. Um, so were those those issues that you just you just described, were all of those manifesting at LinkedIn when you were building Kafka and you were trying to think of how to solve this problem? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think, and and even more than that, the list is longer because, um, you know, essentially when one right gives rise to so many materialized views, uh, the problem is being able to essentially copy them end times gives rise to all sorts of failure scenarios. Let's say you write to your database and your search app went fine, but your newsfeed app uh, didn't go through, and now what? Now your entire state is inconsistent across the board. And um, essentially, I think over time, the problem is that adding any new uh, destinations for your data, essentially adding new apps, you know, is, is very cumbersome because now you have to go and figure out where the data lived previously and how do I connect it back to my new app. So this whole, you know, data architecture got really more complicated over time. And at that point, we introduced Kafka to clean up the picture. Mm. Right. And so you mentioned this term, materialized view. I think this is a relevant term to define. I think it can probably be defined as like a specific application or a database's uh, interpretation of an event. So in, in our example, the user updating a profile, that might be classified as an event, and a materialized view for from the perspective of the profiles database might be the user's new profile, and the materialized view of a, of a uh, caching layer might be something similar to that um, for a search uh, for a searching uh, in a search index, it might be something slightly different. Like you have, um, you know, s different different features of the profile um, indexed in the search index. But for, it's basically the domain specific interpretation of that event. And because you have different databases and different models that are going to respond to a single event, you have different materialized views throughout your application architecture, which is why this is not a a singular update. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, that's accurate. I, I think you, you summarized it well, which is that one event actually leads to a lot of responses or reactions to that event. And those reactions are essentially your business logic. You know, as a reaction, you might take that event and index it in Elastic, or as a reaction, you might update a cache. The, the source of truth is this event. And so event sourcing is essentially, it's realizing that a better way to represent your data is to model the state changes made by applications as this sort of immutable source of truth or immutable log of events. And then just modify your applications to represent your business logic as reactions to those events. So in, in the event sourcing model, is literally every change to our architecture 
modeled as an event? Is is everything modeled as an event? Like even monitoring? Is do we just look at our entire application as a sequence of events? Yes. So in fact, I'll make a broader claim here: is that all your data can be modeled as uh, you know events. Your events uh, end up looking different. So in the form of logs, uh, every line in a log file can be an event. In terms of you know this profile view, that is an event. Uh, even databases can be viewed as events. You know these are uh, every update to a database can be viewed as an event. So the conversation around event sourcing usually also contains a conversation around this this acronym CQRS, Command Query Responsibility Segregation, uh, and I think this term is maybe a little a little uh, confusing. Actually, yes. I think it may just you could just call it like different read and write methodologies. Yes. Like you, you have different patterns for how you access your databases if you're doing a read than if you're doing a write. And as as I understand, that's basically what CQRS is trying to say. And the main thing to discuss here is that there is this event queue that events get put on. And then events go from this event queue to the event store. And event handlers are what cause these events to actually result in a change to a database or a search index or whatever other underlying models Mm -hmm. that event might correspond to. Is that accurate? Could you talk a little bit more about CQRS, how that fits into this conversation? Yeah, and I agree with you that, you know, CQRS, the name is a little confusing, but if you look underneath the covers, it's essentially very simple. It's saying that you split your application logically into two parts, the command side, which is really ordering your system to update state, which is your write side, and then you have your read side, which is querying state to get information. And the underlying idea is that the write model and the read model for an application, it really need not be the same. So this is actually the first big step um, you must take to allow you to scale your reads and writes independently. So this is like, I think, easier to explain with the help of a picture that is in my blog post, which is essentially what you just explained. And, And the way this links back to event sourcing is if you look at your application as a read side and the write side, It is most commonly used with event sourcing because the right side essentially says that instead of going and modifying your right store directly, what you want to do is just put that event on an event store or an event log. And that event log could be Kafka because it is essentially Kafka, if you look at it, is it's an ordered immutable sequence of events or a log. And that is where Kafka comes into the picture as far as event sourcing and and CQRS comes in, is on the write path to model the event log and then on the read path. And that is a broader discussion about stream processing. Indeed. And we will eventually get into that. But So one thing I am curious about with this uh, CQRS model, um, there is this event queue and then there's also this event store. So whenever there's a new event, it gets thrown on the event queue and then eventually it makes its way to the event store and along the way there's these event handlers. Uh, explain this a little bit more. Like, Why are we not just throwing the events directly into the event store? Why do we need this queuing layer? You know, uh, this um, is more of a logical explanation without something like Kafka in the picture. I think your question is exactly right. If you eventually would just want to model your right 
as a sequence of events, then does the queue have to be separate from the store? I think when this model was first introduced, the notion of persistent queues just wasn't there. It wasn't as uh, broadly known. So what you would do is you would put your event onto an in-memory queue of some sort and in the background wait for it to get written to the event store. And I think the reason that this was didn't really take off for a number of years is because it introduces lots of complexity in and of itself is now you have these two things that are writing uh, your right side and you have to now worry about consistency within the event queue and the event store. So um, in... in how do things work in your idea? Uh, I guess you actually pr- present two models, um, and we should get into that eventually. But I guess in in the classical the classical model of CQRS, what what is the pattern for how an event pro- or actually you could just talk about in modern architectures how you typically see this with Kafka? Um, how do you see events? You know, you get an event published to the Kafka queue. What are the steps that that event takes to eventually propagate? So, so like, let's say we have that profile update. Right. The, the, it gets published to the queue, and then eventually it propagates to these different data stores that need to respond to that update. How does that actually take place? That's right. I think in the simplest sense, what Kafka does is it actually collapses the queue and the store. It's It's one and the same thing because Kafka is a persistent, you know, queue or a persistent log. So when you apply Kafka to this picture, it greatly simplifies the picture in and of itself because the write is essentially you take a write and you model it as an event and you do only one thing, which is you append it to the Kafka log. So your write side is simple now. The read side, what it has to do now is subscribe to the event log and react to it. Right. So as part of if you just assume the simplest picture, which is your profile app. Now, what it's doing is it's writing to the Kafka log. And then there are several applications that depend on this Kafka log. They subscribe to it and they have to do something. Right. So if you just take the search app, for instance, what the search app does is it subscribes to this Kafka topic called profile view topic. And it is essentially a Kafka consumer. And it takes the Kafka consumer, it takes an event, and it represents it as, let's say, a write to an elastic index. And it takes that write and it writes it to the index. So the index is essentially now your read store because the search app is now going to read to the store. But that is how we've deconstructed a a large monolithic profile sort of web app into these smaller apps. The app itself just handles the source of truth right to the Kafka log. And downstream, what the rest of the applications do is essentially act as a Kafka consumer. Now, some of those applications have fairly involved logic uh, to react to events, right? And that is where you know stream processing comes in. Is how do you how do you express these event handlers uh, in a more in an easier way, essentially, for developers? Right. And I do want to get into that eventually, but let's let's talk a little bit more about event sourcing, just in the abstract. How does event sourcing affect the... Re- so, like, you know, if we're talking about event sourcing, whether we're using Kafka or we're using some other queuing system, 
how does it affect the read and write performance of the overall system? Like, what are some of the advantages? You've kind of glossed over this, right? Uh, of of implementing CQRS or event sourcing in our overall system. How does it improve read and write performance? Right, and that's great. You know, why why do this in the first place? Right, I think there are a few advantages, and then there are some trade offs to know as well. The advantages are that by decoupling the load from reads and writes, it allows you to scale each of these independently. So your read store, which is essentially a pen to Kafka log, those could be millions per second, but your read could be anything you want, which is optimized for your application. So for example, a graph application can use Neo4j as its read store. A search application could use Lucene indexes as its read store, or you know, a simple content-serving app could just use an embedded cache. So this decoupling essentially allows you to at least scale your reads and writes independently. But there are actually several more advantages to doing this, uh, especially doing event sourcing. The first one is that by modeling you know, the intent or the source of truth, in this immutable and persistent log, what you do is you make troubleshooting easier. You well, you always have the user intent as an ordered log of immutable events. So when you want to troubleshoot, all you do is you scan back to a point in time into the log and you can replay those events. And that is the biggest advantage, according to me, uh, as far as event sourcing goes, is you can deploy applications. Those applications could be wrong. You can throw away the state that is created by the application. You can go back to this log and rewind and reprocess. But there are several more advantages. Because you have this ordered log of immutable events, now your business has an audit and compliance log which has an added benefit of data provenance. So you know what happened when and what was the source of truth that led to this change in my business logic. Um, And more importantly, I think it it enables resilient applications. So rolling back an application in this state of the world, it only amounts to rewinding to this event log and reprocessing data. And that's actually a really big deal. And do I want to put CQRS in my application from the beginning, or is this something that, it sounds like maybe if I did this at the beginning, uh, maybe it's a little extra complexity, maybe this is something that I only need in an application once it starts to get big and complex and there's a lot of subscribers, like maybe at the beginning I can just have a, a monolithic database, <laughs> yes. I, don't, I don't need you know, these different caching layers and indexing and stuff, and I don't need to publish updates to all of them. Um, Is this something more that that gets implemented into applications that are a little more mature? You know, uh, I actually think that this is the foundation that you put in place to be able to add more applications in the future. And Mm -hmm. and I really call this as, you know, event sourcing enables you to build a forward compatible application architecture. Think about this, you know, if if you had event sourcing from the beginning, you have applications that record the source of truth, and you can add more applications in the future that want to react to your source of truth differently and create a totally different materialized view. I think that it is, in fact, a a first step that a lot of companies are taking now to break down their monoliths into more of a microservices-based architecture. And this is um, what enables you to do that. I think uh, this is definitely something that is easier to do if you realize the power 
Um, but I think it is more prevalent now that the tool set exists. Yeah, definitely. And so many of the conversations around microservices that I have um, are not necessarily having to do with some sort of uh, CQRS or event queue in the middle, although certainly there are some some people I've talked to who, who have that. A lot of them are, you know, it's like they're just, they're just splitting off different microservices uh, from the monolith and then, you know, th- these are just restful services that are just, um, you know, pinged to communicate with one another. Um, could, could you, are those two, like, dis, two, two different, um, two different sides of, like, how people are, are implementing, implementing microservice architectures? Like, there's, there's the model where you have some kind of queuing messaging layer, um, and then there's a model where you're just directly contact services are directly contact contacting each other. Maybe, maybe you could illuminate that a little more for me. Yes, these are you know they're related but orthogonal. E- event sourcing, CQRS, it makes it possible for you to build these loosely coupled. You know, you, it makes it possible to build a loosely coupled architecture where you could have you know smallish multiple services that represent their own small business logic, but the role that you know Kafka or messaging plays in microservices, that is up for discussion still. So there are two ways you can mm-hmm. think about microservices and the and the need for them to communicate with one another. The the thing to realize is that when you break up an application into multiple small applications, you also break up data into uh, smallish different places, right? So when you segregate your data into small places, it now needs to move between those different applications. And the question is, how should it move? And this really comes down to what you're looking for and your programming model. One is request response. So what, what you can do is continue to communicate synchronously via REST APIs, and that is practical. And the other is to just model it as a messaging problem and send and receive messages through a high-performance queue. And the second is actually more prevalent now, given that Kafka has taken off and is more adopted. It's actually a lot more scalable to be able to do that. And more importantly, it's loosely coupled. So if one service fails, it does not lead to, you know, sort of this cascading failure of all the services that are tightly coupled to that microservice. Mm. And it's more of a philosophical problem to discuss than, you know, a recommended architecture. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I mean, to me, it's, it seems like the put, when you put all the state into events that go on a queue and you have all, basically all the state changes kind of in one place that just, tra- you know, this, this queue that travels or that, you know, that, that propagates information throughout the system, it becomes a little more easy to reason about stuff. You don't have you know microservices that are that are stateful and have to keep track of like oh, okay i just pinged this other microservice and i'm waiting for an event um seems like if you if you pu- push more logic into the queuing or more stateful logic into the queuing layer with this event based architecture it becomes easier to reason about that is exactly right i think it is easier to reason about because the tight coupling goes away you essentially are you have this a highly scalable queue or a buffer that can act as a buffer for any kind of glitches or performance problems or upgrades 
that you might have to you know cater to uh, and this this definitely happens i think if you just think about you know how um, how in an organization services are created uh, different teams are responsible for different microservices they are really not going to talk to each other before they change it and that's one of the advantages of moving to sort of this queue is you don't really have to tightly couple any of these services they can independently change while they change and while they upgrade you have this queue that can maintain the source of truth and uh, wait and hold the data until the microservices are ready to use it. So you also you also might have subscribers that might process an event and then they publish a new event to another event stream immediately. What is an example of when this pattern would be useful? It's essentially, you know, it represents any application in my opinion. You know, if you think about what applications do from an input output perspective, they really subscribe to events or they subscribe to, uh, you know, let's just say events. And the business logic is a transformation over those events. You know, as a transformation, you could be doing anything. You could be counting or you could simply be referring to some kind of state. And then you have some kind of output, right? As an output, you might write it to a database or you might send it to another microservice or you might write it to a Kafka log and send it somewhere else. I think this is a very broad characterization of what any application does. And and uh, I'm actually a big believer of representing it that way. So uh, if you have these different subscribers to the event stream, do you need to keep an eye on how synchronously they are pulling events? Because it seems like if they're, well, I guess, you know, when would, when would this be sensitive? Um, when would it be problematic to have one service pull the profile change uh you know, it, it, in one context and another, um, another service pulls the profile change off of the event queue uh, a significant amount of time later. And and how do you resolve the the issue of synchronizing updates across the different systems that are pulling from the event queue? I think it comes down to the guarantees that you're looking for. Uh, if you want to have tight consistency guarantees, so for example, the, the the highest one could be you know read after write guarantees, where you want to make sure that your write isn't complete until it is read by a couple of downstream services. I think if you need that, then the Kafka protocol itself, especially if you've decided to go with Kafka, that needs you know some changes. And the the question is, you know, should you be designing services that way? Uh, the answer is yes. In some cases, it does. Yeah, it yeah, it, it might make sense that you want to make sure that your um, you know your event is written or is durable. That oftentimes is misconstrued as your event has reached. 10 different places. I think that a majority of applications, what they want to make sure is that the event is durable. That you get from Kafka. Now, the read after write semantics, those are, you know, maybe a small subset of your applications would need that, and that would be a problem if you want to move to this sort of event sourcing CQRS kind of architecture. And, and that's why I think that, you know, event sourcing CQRS, it's not a high level or a top level architectural pattern. It is a, an architectural pattern that you want to apply in, within the context of your business logic, within the context of your application. 
you are referring to this event log as this immutable stream of events that is our source of truth. So are we ever deleting events? Are we ever doing garbage collection? Yeah, I, and there are uh, lots of forms of garbage collection. You know, uh, at least the ones Kafka supports are, one is time-based, so you can configure a particular window of time, and once that passes, Kafka deletes data. The nice thing about Kafka is that uh, the performance is constant no matter how long that window is, so it could be days or months. Um, the second is space. So you, you know, if you're operating uh, at a Facebook scale, then you probably are more worried about space than anything else. Uh, and so you can configure it that way. But the last one is the most important one, which is that uh, you know, it can be garbage collected uh, via something called as lock compaction. What that models is a garbage collection strategy that databases use where every event has a key and you garbage collect all but the latest value for every unique key. So now what you have is what resembles a database commit log. And Kafka is very, very often used as a database commit log, essentially to feed multiple applications downstream. Right. Wait, so, it, uh, so it's not actually replacing the, like the, the, the database commit log of databases that you are using downstream Right, it's it's just more of like a like a commit log that exists at the application level. Yes, it is essentially you know um, turning the database inside out. It doesn't replace your downstream you know data stores, which could be many, and now you have lots and lots of those. What it does is it essentially applies the you know how databases are designed internally. And internally, how databases are designed is the source of truth is the commit log, and the tables are just views on top of the commit log. So if you apply that to your company-wide data architecture, Kafka is the commit log, and every application or system that is serving data is a view on top of that log. Okay, so we've been talking about event sourcing a little bit more in the abstract. We've touched some on why Kafka is useful for event sourcing, but... For most of what we've talked about, you could just replace Kafka with any queue. But let's let's talk about more uh, about specifically Kafka. So, um, you know, you talk about the importance of event sourcing creating forward compatibility. I think Kafka, one way Kafka fits nicely into this forward compatibility is the idea of scale, because Kafka obviously handles scale quite nicely. Um, you know, you can scale con- consumers and producers um, well, there's good abstractions for for doing this scalability. So, why else is Kafka particularly well suited for being our our queue for the events? I think several reasons. So, the one, uh, you know, the most important one is the fact that Kafka is an ordered and persistent log. So, the fact that when you write to the Kafka log, you can pick the level of durability that you want for your log. Either it could be the highest level of durability, in which case you're waiting until that event is propagated across all the replicas, in which case either you can can tolerate a lot of failures. Um, And the second one is when you write an event to a Kafka log, it is persisted by default. So even if your application comes and goes, your event is safe with Kafka. 
I think that is one of the most important or at least two of the most important reasons why Kafka is a good fit. But the more practical ones are that Kafka is uh, very broadly deployed at very large scale across thousands of companies. So it is a lot more practical now than it ever was to actually um, you know, further this kind of architecture patterns and make this commit log a core abstraction that you develop your applications on. Definitely. And we did a show recently with your colleague, Jay Kreps, who was one of the architects of Kafka, and we explored Kafka streams in that episode. And as I was researching for the episode we were having now, um, I and reading your blog post, I started to understand more why Kafka streams are valuable, because the 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 most specific application I saw in your blog post was Kafka streams can function as the event handlers for this CQRS pattern. If you have Kafka as the event queue, you can use Kafka streams as these event handlers. So why is that important? Why are Kafka streams particularly well suited to this function? I think um, you know, especially like the first one is if you've picked Kafka as your log, then Kafka Streams is a good fit because it is essentially another Kafka client. But the, uh, the important reasons are that Kafka Streams or the Streams API in Kafka is actually a full-fledged stream processing library and it offers transformations of all types that you might want to represent event handlers. So what you might need is filters, transforms, windows of all types, joins. And Kafka Streams, what it does is it, it offers a lot of those capabilities. And it is a very lightweight layer that is now practical to use in any Java application. The reason is because we architected it as a library on purpose so that any standard Java application or a Java developer could use it to model uh, the event handler. Uh, as as uh, it is termed as in the CQRS terminology, but to essentially make stream processing as a broadly acceptable application programming model. That is really why Kafka Streams is designed the way it is, is we believe that applications, what they do is they process events and they write events. And we wanted something that is practical that developers could use, and that is what the Streams API in Apache Kafka is about. So you've got this big Kafka log of a bunch of events, and then you have all these services, these databases, for example, that are pulling events off of or having events pushed to them. I don't know exactly what it is, but you have Elasticsearch, for example, and Elasticsearch needs to make a materialized view of an event that is coming off of the queue, and the Kafka stream turns the event into the materialized view that the uh, search index wants to see, and similarly, and some uh, some other service uh, that maybe the profile update service, the the event is being transformed into a different materialized view. It is a it is a different uh, database uh, update that the profile viewer will see, and then any other services or databases that are pulling off of the event queue can materialize the event into whatever view they want to see and the thing that is doing that transformation into the materialized view is the Kafka stream. Is that 
Is that right? That's right. I think, uh, you know, when, when you transform, what you're doing is sometimes just enriching data. So that is represented okay. as a join or right. you're filtering, uh, you know, PII data out. So that's a filter. And sometimes all you're doing is just transforming or projecting some fields uh, into Le fewer fields so that you can index only what you want and that is sort of a generalized you know terminology for what stream processing is right it, it just means that you take streams of events and you transform them and and create more streams of events and that is how stream processing or kafka streams represents the event handler that is what the event handler is meant to do so when you talk about enriching the one example i've heard of that is like maybe the event is some uh, moment in time at a specific uh, geolocation and the enriching is turning that geolocation into a specific location. Some maybe it talks to a, a Yelp API and it turns that, that geo into a store or a restaurant. What, I mean, how much enriching uh, are we talking about with the Kafka streams? Is it specifically for uh, more simple requests, or can we do some like complex machine learning type of stuff? Like maybe we have um, a machine learning model. Like maybe the event is an image, and we want to turn that image into uh, some ident like an identified image. We want to put it through a machine learning model. Is this something we would put in the Kafka streams, or would we use the Kafka stream to kick it off to a, a Spark? cluster or something like that or what exactly uh yeah i don't know yeah yeah that for me <laughs> yes i can i think uh, your your question is spot on is what does enrichment look like you know traditionally what enrichment looks like is your state uh that you want to enrich it with it lives somewhere else right and it usually right. lives in some external database so in, so that the events can be smaller that's right. So, uh, you know, just in our Facebook example, the profile view event, it doesn't have your name and your state and where you are. It just has your ID, right? Yeah. And if you want to really enrich it, you might need to join it with the profile, you know, attributes. So the question is, how do you join it? And, and there are two ways to do that. You either make an external RPC to your external database that might have those fields, in which case for every event that you're processing, you're making an external RPC. That is possible. However, as you can imagine, that is slow because your events are probably hundreds of thousands per second and your external database when accessed in this way can only support maybe thousand queries per second. So the, the what Kafka Streams enables is for you to push that external state or a view of that external state into what's known as local state within Kafka Streams. And it enables you to do that as an option, is for you to represent that local state, you know, represent that external state, break it down into smaller pieces, and put those pieces within your stream processor. If you did that, and if your key space is partitioned the same way, then any request that comes to one of the instances of, let's say, a search app, it can look it up internally, locally, and do the transformation and do the data enrichment and then write it to Elastic. And that is actually a bigger, you know, um, sort of bigger uh, architectural change that we are evangelizing here, which we made possible at LinkedIn and it works really well, is for you to essentially build these data intensive applications. What you need to do is processing and state needs to live together. 
And Kafka Streams makes it possible because it supports this locally available but durable state. Okay, so this is where it. This is where your article got really interesting for me. Um, yes. And I was sort of like, am I like reading this correctly? Because yes. Because <laughs> so so the the first framing that you have for CQRS in this article is you use Kafka Streams. And the database models the application state or your search index or whatever else. Right. And it's like, okay, that's that's classic uh, conservative CQRS. Yes. But the next pattern that you present is the idea of using Kafka streams to be the actual state representation. Okay, so explain this again. You, I know you just explained it once, but it's kind of weird because uh, I don't want to say yes. weird. It's, it's unus- un- unusual to people because people think of like streams. Okay, it's a stream. It's this transient thing that's like right. moving between one thing and another <laughs> but you're talking about here the stream is the state representation what does that mean yeah I, that's great i i think you know um it is bold and crazy because it is bold and crazy i think uh, <laughs> uh this is uh, actually something i'm really excited about what i meant by that is that as an alternative for highly sort of data intensive applications, what you can do is, you know, there are two ways of doing this at a high level. Let me just step back. At a high level, you can either sort of push your streams to your database that lives somewhere else, or what we're doing is as an option, pushing the database within the stream. So now, if you look at what Kafka is, is that it's actually a lightweight embedded little database. And that database is, the nice thing about that is it's completely swappable. It could be anything. It could be a hash map, it could be a RocksDB store, it could be a Lucid index. Currently what is supported is an in-memory hash map or a RocksDB store. But I need to you know, explain a little bit about you know, how it works underneath the covers to really make sense of why this uh, is even possible, right? So the, the way this works is that every instance of your application, uh, let's just say your search application, it embeds this Kafka Streams library anyway, right, to model your event handler. Now, what it does is it allows the way Kafka partitioning works is it allows uh, every instance of your application to host a subset of the key space or to host a subset of the application state. So what, what it's doing is every instance of an application has this little embedded database that is actually a small percentage or a small part of your entire database if you think of it logically but the the it's in memory yes it's in memory you know Um, and so you might think well that's good but um, now my application could be restarted or it can fail so some part of my little embedded database is just going to disappear and uh, that's not a good idea, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, what I'm advocating is for part of your data to go away. So that doesn't work. What Kafka streams and Kafka does is basically it makes that little embedded sharded database highly available and durable. And you might think, well, how is that even possible? So you know, you know to explain that, let me refer back to how a traditional database is designed. A database has a commit log inside of it. You don't see it. And your table is just a view on top of it. So when your database crashes, what it does is it actually goes back to the commit log. It reads the you know source of truth, and it recreates your tables. Mm-hmm. And 
that is essentially what we do here is your little embedded database is essentially your table. The, the source of truth transparently lives in a highly available and durable Kafka topic. So even if your application and hence your little embedded database goes away, when it restarts, Kafka Streams knows that, oh, th these are the subset of key space that I'm supposed to own. I can go back to the respective partitions in Kafka and read and recreate it. And that is essentially how it becomes highly available as well. So the data that you're keeping in that that small embedded database is that like a like an LRU cache type of thing where you're just like keeping the data that's most likely to be to be accessed? Or you, uh, that's that's what I kind of understand. Like, are you keeping the entire database in memory? What's no, going on? Yeah, yeah, it's the entire state. So if imagine wow. that you okay. know, let's let's just deconstruct our search app, right? Like a search app is yeah. a bunch of let's just say Lucene indexes, right? So what I do is um, this embedded store, and if this was if this was replaced by a Lucene index, what you're doing is you're essentially storing part of your Lucene index that is um, you know, relevant to a part of your partition key space in one instance of your application. And the way to scale this out is by adding more and more instances of your application and hence scaling it out. So if you scale it out, you can infinitely have like a really, really large search index. And if you look at what this application is, it is your search application because um, it's reading events that are the profile view event. And it is, uh, let's just say it's data enriching it and it's storing it in its internal cache. And that cache happens to be an index, a Lucene index. So a read API, what that does is it goes to one of these little indexes and it uh, you know, searches that index and it returns a result. But is this search app could actually be something totally different. It could actually be your newsfeed, you know, and in if this was your newsfeed, the little embedded store could be RocksDB. And what it's storing is the list of, let's just say, um, you know, the list of uh, all the newsfeed content that is relevant to your key and your key is your profile key. So the point is that, you know, at a if you zoom out a little bit, what Kafka Streams does is it's using Kafka as the commit log and this little local state as an embedded database. Wow, okay, I understand. So, so this is very interesting to me. Um, how, how, so you, you mentioned you've been evangelizing this and uh, you know, obviously that that article was a good example of that. So I find this idea very compelling. I find it like this sounds like it makes sense for a lot of applications. How do you convince people to try it out? Because there have been lots of great ideas throughout. You know, we can talk about the history of computer science. Yes. Great ideas that have just taken a really, really, really long time to make their way into a, a framing that people will actually use it because... You know they'll, you know somebody will hear about this and be like, "This is a great idea." It is, but it's kind of outside of the realm of what I'm comfortable with and like how my paradigms work. So yeah. how do you get people to to use that? You know, um, first off, I should say that this this new idea, you know, the the downside of it is that you know you don't want to replace everything right away with this mm. new way of managing your data. In fact, sometimes 
you, um, there are good reasons for using your database, your existing database, uh, as the source of truth. This is, you know, more so an application paradigm for derived state and stateful applications, of which there are many. Mm. And this is essentially like, you know, and it's probably you increasing. Have, that's probably increasing. Yeah, yeah, um, that's increasing. You no longer have a source of truth relational database and a data warehouse. You have right. lots of these projected views and uh, they're yeah, scattered. Yes, <laughs> there are lots and lots of this, uh, these, you know, derived states and stateful applications that are needed in order to build some of these, you know, highly sort of very agile. rich state too. Yeah, it's very rich. It's very agile. And so you, you need this for, you know, a lot of derived states. So that's where people tend to start. Now, why would, how do you evangelize this? I think we did this uh, at least a couple of years ago in back in LinkedIn. And, um, you know, the, the way to go about this is for the, for the technology to first of all be practical and usable and Kafka is a big part of it but Kafka streams is relatively new take on how do you want to you know do this and so usually how you know people adopt this is in steps you know as as you want to do this let's say Kafka is your commit log anyway for storing a lot of these events you might want to adopt Kafka streams as just the event handler it's just a way to process these events and then write them into your external store. And for a subset of those applications, you will realize that your state store is not scalable or it is um, too restrictive or that you have a lot, a lot of these little tiny stateful microservices that would need this, you know, sort of embedded state. And that's how gradually people, you know, tend to buy into sort of new paradigms. But I actually think that this is a good idea to represent a lot of your stateful applications for actually several reasons. You know, there are fewer moving pieces in this architecture. It's just your application and the central Kafka cluster you already have. So you don't have to deploy, maintain, operate a, a large external distributed database just for your application, right? Um, it provides better isolation. So if you think about this, the state is within the application one rogue application, it cannot overwhelm a central data store that is shared by several others. And it is actually, it's, it's faster and more efficient. So the data is local to your application, so you can access it very quickly. So especially if your application needs to access a large amount of state, then you don't really want to duplicate it between two places. And that allows you to do that. I think, you know, more than all of this, it allows for flexibility, right? The internal application state, it can be optimized for the query pattern required by application. And that one is really important. So a couple questions. Um, first, so when you're evangelizing this or talking to other large companies, I, like the first company that comes to mind is is uh, Netflix. Like have, have you talked to, to the people at Netflix at all? Like it seems like they... Because the, they're always on the they're always on the crazy experimental cutting edge of uh, of doing this kind of stuff. They have giant Kafka deployments, also. Ha, 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 you know, and obviously you've got LinkedIn as a um, as a proof of concept or an example that I don't know, I don't want to call it proof of concept, but an example that actually where you actually have you you said you had this deployed uh, at scale. Are there companies that are that are receptive to this that are like, well, this pattern makes complete sense for us, and we're going to start 
doing this when it makes sense. Yeah, I think uh, two companies that have you know largely bought into this, but there are several others. I think Netflix and Uber are you know two right. big examples yeah. of uh, you know sort of companies that are way ahead of the game in terms of being sort of practical about microservices and yeah. building a lot of these stateful but stream oriented applications because the business itself is stream oriented. Right. The way Uber sort of, um, you know, deploys a lot of their um, sort of location services or pricing services, those are all, they all operate in, in a streaming fashion. It's too late to do it later on, right? And those are actually, I think, web companies tend to be ahead of the game in many ways when new application patterns are introduced. But I am continually happily surprised to see enterprises taking this very seriously. In fact, a lot of financial institutions are moving to microservices, stateful applications, and even some of them thought this case for Kafka streams and interactive queries actually makes a lot of sense for derived data applications. Um, I think that we, we're standing on the foundation of Kafka, which already is in thousands of companies. So introducing you know, this API, streams API layer to take it one step further is going to be very exciting and fairly quick compared to Kafka's rise itself. Yeah, so are you at, at Confluent, where you work, it's a company that makes Kafka products, and um, how, are you offering this to customers, or are you thinking of uh, abstractions that you can offer as products that will make this kind of event sourcing architecture easier, or... Um, is this not fitting into the the product as much at this point? Uh, it does. It does. I think um, you know Confluent, uh, the product itself, is an enterprise distribution of Kafka, and uh, the Streams API is very much part of Apache Kafka itself. So it comes uh, with any download of Apache Kafka for any Kafka user. Um, the the features that are required to go from development to production, uh, you know, cross data center replication, uh, management and monitoring, um, uh, sort of better data balancing across your cluster, multi-tenancy uh, management, security management. These are things that we focus on as a, as a company is to really make it easy for you to take your Kafka and, and put it as a central platform in production for mission critical apps. What we think where stream processing fits in is that we really believe it should be a broadly applicable programming paradigm. And for that, it has to be you know easy, easy to use, free to use. It's absolutely part of Apache Kafka, and we will help as a community, anyone who wants to get started with it. Um, okay, so I guess last last question I have is kind of about um, arch like an architectural uh, team question. So when different teams are writing code on this CQRS architecture, who is responsible for different parts of the logic? Like if I stand up a new service that consumes off of this global message bus, do do I define the event model? Do I define my materialized view? Um, do I just say, okay, um, somebody else in the organization is creating this event. I need to subscribe to it in this way, and I need to write my own event handler for that. Or I, I guess I'm just more broadly, I'm I'm curious about how, and since you experienced this at LinkedIn, how large organizations 
the responsibilities break down for um, for implementing different parts of the CQRS uh, architecture? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually do think that in addition to technology benefits, CQRS and event sourcing, it has big organizational benefits as well. By essentially decoupling read and write paths, you decouple the teams that are responsible for the business logic of the read and write paths as well. The reason is because there are lots and lots and lots of read paths and oftentimes very few write paths and different teams in, inside of a company have a better understanding of these different parts. I think as far as you know, moving broadly to a commit log, Kafka sort of as the event log architecture, the data model is actually one of the most important parts of the conversation is how do you represent your schema for your event in a way that multiple downstream applications can keep reading it in spite of changes. And we, we at Confluent and uh, you know even generally as in the community, we've talked a lot about how you want to make sure that your data is structured and you have the tools to make sure that any change made to your schema is backwards compatible. Um, and that's that's actually at a company level, having the tooling to do that and having the discipline uh, to do that is actually one of the most important practical parts of moving to, uh, whether it is CQRS or no, moving to microservices-based architecture. All right. Well, Neha, uh, thanks for coming back on the show. I've, um, it's always a pleasure to, to talk, and this is a very interesting conversation. Is there anything else you want to add? No, I think, uh, you know, I had a great conversation. Uh, I'm personally really excited about this, and I'm glad I could share my views on your show. Awesome. Okay, great. Well, um, thanks again. I'll talk to you soon. Great. Talk to you soon, Jeff. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow. 